Unlocking Your World of Creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. Mark introduces you to some of the world's leading creative talent from publishing, film, music, restaurants, medical research, and more. You'll discover how to tap into your most original thinking, how to organize your ideas, and most of all, how to make the connections and create the opportunities to launch your creative work. Unlocking your world of creativity. Welcome back, friends, to our podcast. My guest today is an old industry colleague, Haymont Padmanabhan. Haymont, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Thanks, Mark. Haymont is someone I've known in the industry, but we've had a chance to reconnect over the past few weeks. And I just wanted to talk to you, Haymont, about your creativity, your approach to the business, some of the creative things that you're seeing in the life sciences and biotech industries. And so as I think about it, I always like to start with just kind of what's on people's creative plate right now. What's a challenge that you're finding really needs your creative side of your brain, your creative attention right now? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now we have a situation and to give you a little more context, I work with a rare disease drug. And so we're trying to get this drug through clinical trials and then apply to the FDA and then get it approved. So, you know, there's good intentions all around within biotech companies where we do want to get this drug out to the marketplace. But to do that, we also have to, especially in rare diseases, you'll have to find where physicians are treating such patients. And it's not always easy to find. Typically what happens is these, these patients go through like close to three to nine years of delay from the symptoms start all the way to getting a diagnosis. So the question we have in front of us is how do you diagnose these patients effectively in a, in a timely manner? And so that's the key question. And so what we're doing right now is we're looking into something called genetic testing, sponsored genetic testing. So we can help patients get access to free genetic testing so that they can get themselves tested if they have certain symptoms. And the reason why this is a creative problem is because you can't just go out, out there and make this available because it's expensive. And so we'll have to do this in a responsible manner. And there's, there's two sides to it. One is the medical side, and the other thing is the commercial side to how you get these things done. And some of the key, the, the key creative questions we're facing is, what are those constraints that you have to put in place so that patients can say, yeah, I need this, this, and this, and so I can get this testing done. It's interesting from a clinical point of view, as you said, this conflict between speed yes. and diligence. Uh, right. You want to do it right. You want to be ever so uh, vigilant. And yet we've got to get this thing moving. Yep, exactly. Exactly. That's always uh, top of mind. And, and how do you manage that balance? So, you know, where we take our guidance from is really looking at what we're supposed to, work, to do in terms of a plan. So we have a tactical plan that we try to uh, stick to. And what I mean by a tactical plan is you take a project like genetic testing, there's certain instances in time where you have to get certain milestones done. For example, if it's genetic testing, you look at the contracting that you do with a, with a large national lab. LabCorp is an example of a large national lab. That's not the lab we're working with, but that's just an example where we have to get the initial contracting done. And once you do that, then you start going to finer details of how exactly you would work together with them. So these are all examples of different milestones that you have to satisfy. And to do that, you have to have a plan in the first place. And so to balance speed versus accuracy, one of the mantras we use is don't let perfect be the enemy of good, which is let's get to a point where it works 
and then let's get started. And then we can always iterate on it or optimize on it once you get started. And I guess you think of it from the rare disease patient's point of view, you know, they sure, waited long sure. enough. I mean, nine years, come on. Exactly. And it's interesting because even now with uh, key physicians, key specialties, you still see, we talk to them on a regular basis and they tell us, you know, just the other day, there was a patient that came through, we probably missed a diagnosis. And the reason why is, you know, despite the fact that these are physicians, these rare diseases are not straightforward. You could present with different symptoms and it may look like something else. It may look like a more common situation when it could be a rare disease. So it's, that's, the, that's the puzzle that doctors grapple with and we try to help. Uh, and one way we help is we, we launch websites, we have educational programs. So recently we launched a website called Uncovering PH, PH the letters P and H, Uncovering PH. And PH is a rare disease that we're trying to, to resolve. So that's an example of how we try to educate in the marketplace to, to get those physicians to, to diagnose quicker. Yes. And I think, Hamant, hey, I think our listeners might be interested. You know, we, we use this term rare disease so often, and there yes. is a needle in a haystack kind of uh, analogy that's often used. But rare diseases as a market is really huge, isn't it? It is. It is. Uh, so what they say is if you take out the, the commercial numbers, they say the estimation is there's roughly 7,000 rare diseases. Now, if you focus in on one rare disease, um, let's say hemophilia, for example, and I think right now Genentech is the leader with this drug uh, for hemophilia called Hemlibra. And it's, it's, the drug sells, uh, I think, a couple billion a year, a billion dollars globally. So there's that many patients that need that drug. Uh, to be to basically control their bleeds for, from hemophilia. And so you're right. And despite the fact that these are rare diseases, uh, these are individually um, large markets, so to speak. And the reason for that is really companies have spent, for example, my company, we've spent close to 10 years so far investing in this drug and they're going to apply to the FDA. And so you can imagine how many hundreds of millions of dollars it takes to get to that point. And then you got to make the money, you got to make back that money so that you can take the profit and then reinvest it back in other, other research. And I think maybe that's something, again, the patients and the lay public often don't understand. And, you know, sometimes the focus is on the price of the drug or, exactly. you know, how long it's taken to get approved or if the FDA did or didn't like your study design. But under the hood of all of that, mechanism is the search for a better cure. Right, exactly. And, and, you know, we've had some real meaningful improvements. And recently there was a case study published by a physician in San Francisco who was taking our drug. And this is a published case study. So this is public information where the patient was supposed to undergo a combined liver and kidney transplant because of her condition. But the, and she was on the top of the list. So she had to make a decision if she needed the liver transplant. And the, the patient's family decided that they're not gonna take the liver transplant because they have the drug that they're using. And to be clear, this is not an approved drug. This was based off of compassionate use. But the, the, the fact that the drug is helping her, it gives you an early inkling of the fact that these drugs, after having spent 10 years, they actually have real impact on patients' lives. Interesting. And, you know, as you think about the, the seats around your conference room, uh, this is an audio podcast, so my listeners can't see. But, I mean, as, as you think about the other eight people that might be working with you and the scientists and the data analytics people and the regulatory people, all of them listening, what do you think the team effort 
to listen to the patients? Where does the value in that team approach come in for you? Hey, Mark. It's a, it's a really critical situation with most teams where you have individual thinkers, and these are all functional experts in their own domain. You mentioned regulatory. So regulatory works with the FDA, as you know. And then there's clinical trial, clinical heads who run clinical trials. There's someone like me in commercial who tries to understand how best to launch the product. And there's data analysis people, there's IP, there's finance, and so on. So for all of us, what I've tried to do is I've chaired this team called the commercialization team. And as part of that process, one of the, the main objectives is to make sure that this team is aligned in our thinking about what we need to, how we need to build this drug, number one. And where we get our inspiration for that is from market research, speaking to patients, for example. So we've done, uh, more recently, we've done something called an ethnography study where we spent, um, I think with 15 different patients, because of COVID, we couldn't go to their actual homes physically, which is what we would have done pre-COVID. But we did a virtual ethnography where we spent through a webcam, we spent significant time with these 15 patients to really understand the burden of this rare disease. And having understood that, that tells you how you need to build your product. And a good example of that is we've been looking at a pre-filled syringe. And that means that you don't just get a while when you when you get the drug. Once it's approved, all of this is, you know, we're talking about when it's approved, but if and when the drug is approved, which, which we're hopeful of, um, the drug would come in a pre-filled syringe and the patient just has to take it out of the box and inject it subcutaneously. And this is a self-injection. The patient does not have to go into the physician's office. Uh, so these are all things that we decided based off of listening to patients and understanding how we can work with their lives rather than force them on a monthly or a quarterly basis to go into a physician office. And one of the things with rare diseases is you could have a patient that's in the middle of nowhere who needs treatment and he or she may have to travel hundreds of miles sometimes, number one, to get a diagnosis and number two, to get treatment. And it also, and once you move that far, and the reason why you have to go that far is because an expert in your disease may not be in your local area. And when you do that, now insurance becomes a problem because many of these regional plans, they don't cover a physician that's out of network. So there's all these issues that patients have to deal with, which is why we came up with the, uh, the facility to make sure that the patient can get this drug shipped to home as well as injected themselves. So that removes many of the problems. So that's an example of how I had to convince the commercialization team to say, these are the features we need to have in this drug product because this is what would work well with the patient's lives. And that's how we, we stay aligned. That sounds terrific. And you know, Hemant, that's so interesting because it makes so much sense, you know, when you step back from it. And yet, even today, there are entrepreneurs, there are inventors, there are companies out there that say, look, I've, I've created God's gift to the XYZ, right? <laughs> and so we just need to push it out there. Right. And, uh, you know, this customer-centered, patient-centered approach certainly helps speed things right. along, I believe. Is that what it you does. found as well? It, it does. In fact, um, it's interesting, you know, I, I talked about the answer to your first question about patient diagnosis and patient finding, you can build the product, but they will not come. You know, it's, it's like, these are all rare diseases. So while you can build it, you got to build it in a manner exactly like what you said, you got to really understand the patient's needs and build it. And then also do the work to find these physicians and these patients that are hiding that are either misdiagnosed or something else, or they've been diagnosed, but they have no idea that the drug is available. So do, to do all of that, you're going to do some deep uh, discussions with patients to understand how they think and how they approach healthcare so that you can be available and you can make yourself 
uh, make them aware of your drug. So good. Well, to maybe step back a little bit from the work and the industry specific stories, I'm also just curious in your own creative inspiration. Where do you derive some of your creative ideas and you know, whether it be hobbies or readings or other uh, pursuits? Thank you for asking that. <laughs> so for me, I'll say there's a couple areas where I find inspiration and these are physical activities that I do. For example, I hike quite regularly every once a week. I go running once a week as well. And, and because of my rapidly aging body, I've decided I've had to <laughs> tone down on the running from three times a week to once a week. But those are all times when you are physically in stress. But for me, that's a time when I actually can think as well. And, and it takes the you know, it takes your mind off of the, you know, running, let's say five miles. Uh, every every second you can feel it. <laughs> and the way you do that, the way I try to forget it is by thinking about many things that I've dealt with. Uh, it could be an idea that I've read about in the newspaper or, or on a website. And, and that's where I get my inspirations. There's quite a few times where I've listened to podcasts just like this one and something sparks in you some sort of a, a question that says, yeah, what if I can apply that somewhere else? And so those are all the ways I get my inspiration for, for creativity. There you go. We'll have to get you out to Boise to uh, yes. do some hiking. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, for yeah sure. some real real mountains, not those little hills in Boston. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Although there is one famous heartbreak hill, but we have yeah. bigger hills. <laughs> yeah, yeah, makes sure. Makes sense, makes sense. Recently, That's... I did a Mount Washington out here in, in the White Mountains. Oh, Georgia, it's gorgeous, it. yes. It's a beautiful mountain, and, and I, I, I wouldn't dare do it in the winter. I think but... I did go in the winter once during the Christmas break. Right. It, it is gorgeous. <laughs> yes. But it's so interesting you say that sometimes when you step away from the computer, you're out running. This is the thing that people always say, I get my best ideas in the shower. What, what do you think it is about stepping away from yeah. it and just letting the ideas take a chill pill and then, right. you know, come back at it? My theory, my theory is just like dreams and that early morning time when I'm either stressed out about something or I'm thinking about, or I'm, I'm actually happy thinking about something that could go well. Uh, I think that these are times when you don't have any walls around your thinking, um, whether it's running for me, or even I'll tell you even early in the morning, you know, the time when you wake up and you don't, didn't want to wake up, but you're awake now and you're trying to get back to sleep, but then your mind starts racing. At least that's how mind happens. And that's when you get to thinking that is not bound by your normal checks and balances. And I feel that's when you make connections that you never would have done otherwise. I'll tell you, you know, I've been a, 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 a wannabe author for a long, long time. <laughs> and, and I get some of my ideas to write when I'm just tossing and turning. Uh, unfortunately, I've never finished any of them. <laughs> but I think the answer to your question, in my mind, my theory is that you just make connections mentally that you wouldn't have made if you're sitting in front of a computer or actually working because you have some focused thinking to do there. Yes. Well, we've been talking about synapses and connections, but let's talk about networking and connections. A lot of people are listening to this podcast, a lot of creative people with a lot of different talents. But what are you looking for in terms of attracting talent or connections, resources, knowledge? What are you out there looking for these days? Thinking back to an example, recently I connected with the CEO of a company who wrote something on LinkedIn. And, and he talked about how do you how do you strengthen relationships with people after you meet them? Uh, you know, many times, and I'm very much guilty of this, I, I meet people, but then I don't really follow up. Mm. And so this CEO had written about how do you follow up? How do you make sure that you can actually 
get back to this person. You never know how you could be helpful to them or, or vice versa. You know, they could be helpful to you. People are a valuable resource. And I've seen time and time again, uh, even in my you know, my friends and relatives where people try to talk to someone if they think that there'll be some value there. And I think that's the wrong way to do it. Um, I think you need to be open to helping people. And, and when you start with helping people, at some point in your life, they get back to you and they help you when you when you need it. That's that's been my my uh, mantra. You know, I connect with pretty much everyone in my office, for example. Uh, and I'll tell you, this is not an exaggeration. I sometimes stay late in the office, and the person who cleans the tables and, and empties the the trash is actually a friend of mine. Uh, and and this is that's my philosophy. I mean, I don't care who you are or what you do, as long as you know you're a human. Let's connect and let's. You know, you may have differences in opinion. That that's perfectly fine, as long as you can share a laugh. I think that's great, uh, and you find a way to stay in touch. Uh, and like you said, if you're just open to that, I think right. of even how we reconnected. We probably have didn't even know each other's names uh, ten years ago, right. uh, and yet, as we just have been talking in the last few weeks, we probably now have fifty people that we know in common, and that's just scratching the surface, isn't it? So exactly. uh, one, one thing leads to another, and as you say, it's not just task oriented that you right. would say I need to talk to you about X, Y, or Z, <laughs> but exactly. rather, hey, we're open to the connection. We'll see where it takes us. Exactly, I like that. Well, Himant, what a terrific conversation. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Think about your own creativity and the pursuit even in your vocation. But where, where do you see things over the horizon? For me, I'll tell you a future role um, in the ideal world, which I hope to make it real, but that involves taking quite a bit of risk on my part, is to really strike out and start something that has fundamental impact on the world. And, you know, it's clearly romantic to think of that. You know, it's it feels nice and it's easier said than done. I, I can imagine how hard it is to, to be an entrepreneur. But I think having an impact at the end of the day, I'll tell you a stark way of looking at it is if you look back when you retire and you look back and you say, well, what impact have you had? For me, if I say I've done a nine to five uh, all my life and I'm, I'm happy where I am, I think for me personally, it would be a failure. I think I want to have some real impact. And, and I'll give you an example. One of the things where I'd love to have an impact is on just happiness levels of people. You see, you know, when I go running, I see people and I did, did an experiment. I actually decided to say hello to people, random people, as I was running. And I saw roughly 70% of them said hello back. Mm -hmm. um, the remaining 30%, there was actually one lady I specifically remember, she didn't want to connect. You know, and it was, this was when I was walking. And so I had more time to say hello multiple times. And I thought, you know, she'll just want to be smile, but no. Clearly, there's something going on in the minds of people. And, and this may be a specific situation, but people deal with a lot of things. They may be worried about things at work. They may be uh, unhappy. They may be actually maybe even depressed. So what I'm trying to do is to, how do you get people out of that shell? Um, and I, I don't know how to do it, but <laughs> it's just an idea where maybe if I can have an impact on that, I'll be... It'll be, it'll be good. In fact, I was thinking of maybe I can write a book on that, you know, a simple, small book, not, not a large novel, but a simple illustrative book to say, hey, do these basics and you'll be, you'll be in a better mood than you are at this moment. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, what a great happiness experiment to say, uh, so on your next walk around the block, just say hi right. to folks and see what happens. Exactly. <laughs> and and see what story. happens, exactly. And some people are surprised that you're saying hello and they're, they're like pleasantly surprised and they're yeah. happy. <laughs> yeah. Do I know you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but now with the age of phones, it's, it's almost like uh, 
you know, unheard of for people to say. They just want to look at reforms. And the other thing is, uh, I, this is sad, but I recently read an article about ladies uh, who don't want to attract the wrong kind of attention and, and how they've been trying to uh, curtail themselves and, and not smile at people, not smile, not say hello, simply because it felt like they felt like they were attracting unwanted attention. It's such a it's a sad, sad state of affairs. If that's that's where people are heading, uh, where they can be, you know, free and they can just be human. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you're open to uh, a wave and a hello. Yes. Uh, and on that note, how can people connect with you, Himant, and uh, follow you and follow your work and perhaps make a connection? Yes, um, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, and that's really the place where I generally thrive. Unfortunately, Facebook has become, uh, it's been just a few years, few times that I've logged on to Facebook, but I think LinkedIn is much more, I'm much more active, and I'd love to, you know, if anyone has any questions or just wants uh, someone to throw a, a, a sounding board, you know, I'm happy to help, uh, happy to help whatever your vocation or industry is. So uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. And I'll put the link in the show notes uh, so people can just click on. Oh, very good. What a great conversation, Hemant. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Same here. Thank you, Mark. Very interesting questions. Uh, Thank you terrific. very much. Terrific. Thank you. Well, my guest today has been Hemant Padmanabhan. And you can connect with him on LinkedIn. And listeners, come back again next time. We're going to continue our around-the-world journeys. We love making these global connections today in Boston, but we've also talked to artists in Nigeria, scientists in Gothenburg, Sweden. You know, so we continue to explore the world of creativity, and that's what it's all about. So come back again for our next episode of Unlocking Your World of Creativity. I'm Mark Stenson, and we'll talk to you soon. Unlocking Your World of Creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator Mark Stinson. This program was produced by BSB Media, creators of IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Unlocking Your World of Creativity, and ThePeaceRoom.Love. We've created a special offer just for listeners of the podcast. You can get the book, A World of Creativity, for a special price of $5.98 for paperback. And the Kindle version is only $0.99. Cents. Go to mark-stinson.com to take advantage of this special offer. Our podcast is supported by Adobe and the Adobe Creative Cloud, the world's best creative app and services, so you can make almost anything you can imagine wherever you're inspired. We use Adobe to help make this podcast, using Audition, Premiere Rush, InDesign, and more. So join the creative community with the Adobe Creative Cloud, and let's make something better unlocking your world of creativity. We've created a special offer just for listeners of the podcast. You can get the book, A World of Creativity, for a special price of $5.98 for paperback. And the Kindle version is only 99 cents. Go to mark-stinson.com to take advantage of this special offer.